Let's continue talking about Israel. That's a good suggestion. I like that one. We're going to be on the topic for some time to come. We spent the last few Wednesday nights speaking about the land of Israel. And tonight I want us to talk about not the land, but the people. And not so much the people in Israel, but the people who are Jewish people, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who inhabit that land and other places, even places like Houston, Texas. You see, there is no denying that the Jewish people are referred to as the chosen people. I mean, it says this in the Bible. I'm not making it up. You could see it in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen. See, that's where the Jews came to be known as the chosen people. Has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So we can't, it's indisputable. The Jews are God's chosen but this could lead to some terrible misunderstandings. Some may say uh, the Jews are chosen because they're better, they're bigger, they have more potential. None of that is true. I'll share with you in a second that can't be the case. No, the Jews have been chosen. It's indisputable, but not because of any inherent virtue or merit. Not any better character that distinguishes them from any other people group. On the contrary, maybe the opposite is true of my people. So that God has chosen the Jews is indisputable, but don't misunderstand the reason for which he chose them. Again, it's not because of anything real special about them. In fact, this too is evident in the same text, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. So I, I, I hope I, I'm not even coming close to implying anything more special about this particular people group than any other. I don't, want, I don't want ever to do that because God is no respecter of persons. So this being the case, it leads us to this question. If then God chose the Jews... For what purpose did he choose them? And that's what I'd like for us to spend a little time investigating tonight. Chosen for what? And just in case you feel like leaving early or something, I want to give you the answer right here at the outset, at least from in my opinion. I think the answer to the question is this. God chose Israel to be the object and vehicle of his love for the world. That's why the Jews were chosen, to be the object, but not just the object of his love, also the vehicle of his love for the entire world. Now, let me play my hand at the outset. How did he do it? 
by sending the Jewish Messiah through the Jewish people, for the Jewish people, from the Jewish people to the rest of the peoples of the world. That's how the Jews have become the vehicle of God's love. So I want to, I want to develop this um, in detail. So, so let's go back to creation. Man uh, was created. We just didn't pop out of the oceans. We cannot trace our existence to matter. We trace our existence to creator. Elohim created us. So man was created richly blessed because he wasn't just created. You recall when we looked at this, uh, we mentioned that God, uh, man was created in the likeness, the very image of God. That's not true of anything else in creation order. What a privilege. But then man sinned. We read about that long time ago in Genesis chapter 3. And after man sinned and was aware of it, man and woman hid from God. Sin makes us do crazy stuff, doesn't it? They hid from God in the, amongst the very trees he just spoke into existence in the prior chapter. You can't hide from God. But anyway, that's what they tried to do. Because man was naked and afraid, vulnerable to the piercing eyes of a holy and just God. And man made attempts to deal with it with an apron of leaves. A man made effort to cover up for his own nakedness, but it fell short. And so God, who's so good, so gracious, provided a covering for first man. You can read about this in Genesis three and uh, Genesis two and three and so on. And so, man blessed with such privilege, created in the image of God, put in the garden, given useful endeavors, given the privilege of naming all the animals, all the rest, sinned against God, transgressed, brought shame and degradation, even death upon the entire human race. But God intervenes with a hopeful promise. I think sometimes we miss. It's in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and this is what it says. And I will put enmity between you, that's the serpent, Satan, Satan, in the form of a serpent, a beautiful animal then, even walking on legs. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed, the serpent's seed, and her seed, the seed of the woman. He, the seed of the woman, shall bruise you on the head, in other words, a mortal wound, and you shall bruise him on the heel, a wound, but not a fatal wound. Folks, Genesis 3.15 is the first glimmer of a messianic hope. Hope in a promised one, the seed of woman, a deliverer to deliver us from the mess we have gotten ourselves into. Genesis 3.15. It's not clear. It's not precise. has to be further developed. But it begins to open the window, which will open much, much wider as we uh, trek through the Bible. It begins to open the window to God, the God of all hope and grace, sending a deliverer. So man sinned. 
And God promised a savior. Right here, Genesis 3.15. He would be the seed of woman, meaning he would have in part a human character. But he would inflict a mortal blow on none other than Satan himself, meaning he would have divine enablement and power. He would be both human, you see, and divine. He would be wounded. It would cost him dearly to deliver those who have sinned. And though he would suffer and be wounded, he would emerge victorious. So here is the first promise in the Bible of a deliverer. That's good, but not good enough. Who is he? Where is he? Is it you? Is it me? Who fulfills the prerequisites to be the promised Messiah in Genesis 3.15? You and I would be left with speculation and opinion if God didn't point us first away from pretenders to the throne and then to the actual promised deliverer. For instance... Soon after Genesis 3.15, the ones who were recipients of the promise, Adam and Eve, had a baby boy. Do you remember what his name was? Cain. Don't you think that Mama Eve looked at this little beautiful baby and wondered, is he the one? Is he the promised deliverer who will rescue us from sin and then we find as we read on in Genesis, it can't be Cain. He wasn't acceptable, and therefore his very offering to God wasn't acceptable. No, he's not the promised deliverer. But they have another child, and what's that baby's name? Abel. Is it Abel? Eve. Others would wonder, is he Abel the promised one? He couldn't be because he was murdered by his brother Cain. He came to an early and tragic end. We're looking for a living deliverer, not one who's dead, period. And so it cannot be able. And so Adam and Eve have another son. Do you know what his name is? This is a, a way to go. You get a bonus. Seth was this son, you see. Is he in the line of the promised deliverer? How could we know? We can't unless God gives us helpful pointers, and he does. So I want to share with you biblical pointer number one with reference to who the promised deliverer is. And here it is in Genesis chapter 4, verse 26. To Seth... To him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then, then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. That's huge. That's transition. That's a different category. Now we don't have unacceptable offerings and fratricide, the murder of a brother. Now we have in this generation a categorically different tendency. Men in Seth's line begin to call upon the name of the Lord. And that I find to be pointer number one directing our path our goal, our destination, our travels to the promised deliverer. It's in the line of Seth that men began to call upon the name of the Lord. But surely that's not enough for us to conclude who the Messiah is. And so let's move forward several hundred years in biblical history. 
into a time of great immorality and horrid wickedness, uh, the likes of which uh, we couldn't even share in graphic detail, so bad a time was it. In fact, we're told the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And it was so great that the line of the promised Messiah was at risk of being enveloped in the sin of it all. Sin could have suffocated the line of Messiah. But God made a promise in Genesis 3.15 and what God said he will do. And so God intervenes to rescue the purity and survival of the messianic line. And so he intervenes with a universal flood, which you know about. And it served two functions. It destroyed the evildoers, but at the same time, it delivered one family on earth. You see? The same intervention, destruction of evildoers, but deliverance of those in the line of the promised one. And the leader of this particular family, you see, he obeyed God. Through him, God preserved and protected the line of Messiah so that you and I, sitting here rather comfortably today, know who he is. Well, this one was Noah. And so now we have pointer number two in Genesis 6, 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So hang in there with me. God is giving us signposts along the way. Don't think for one moment just because someone claims to be Savior, he fulfills the prerequisites because this is so eternally significant. Don't you think the God who sent him would give us pointers? Here's pointer number two. First, it's Seth through the line of Seth that the promised one will come. Now we see it's through Noah that he will come. And so Noah and his family lived and obeyed and built this ark and were saved from the flood. But Noah had three sons. Do you remember their names? Yeah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so through which of these three sons of Noah does the line of Messiah continue? We need now from God another pointer. And here it is, pointer number three, Genesis chapter 9. Verse 26, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. You know who comes from Shem? The Shemites. You know who the Shemites or the Semites are? Hebrews and Arabs. You see? So now we, we are seeing the Messianic line being narrowed down. You, you see, from Seth to Noah, and now Noah's particular son, Shem. It's through Shem's posterity that the line of Messiah proceeds. And his descendants become Semitic peoples. But we need more pointers because all Hebrews, all Arabs come from Shem. So here's the next pointer provided by God. Pointer number four with reference to the identity of the promised deliverer. It's in Genesis 12, 1 and 2, with which we opened our series a long time ago. God's a transaction with Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country or 
you recall, of the Chaldeans was his country. Go forth from there, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land. It's the land of Canaan or Israel. To the land which I will show you. I will make you a great nation. And now we know, based on this pointer, that the line of descendancy of the promised Messiah passes through Abram, who happens to be a descendant of Shem. And what's more, we also know where to look for the promised one, the land of Canaan. You're not going to find him in Alvin, Texas. I'm telling you that right now. Look no further. You got to get back to Israel. That's where the Messiah comes from. It says right over there. But we need more pointers, you see, because many people groups trace their descendancy from Abraham. And so here is pointer number five, Genesis 17, verses 18 and 19. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said no. Do you mind if I ask you what part of no is hard to understand? <laughs> you see, I say that because the Quran teaches that the line of promise is through Ishmael. But God said, no. You know what no means in Hebrew? It, the same thing as it means in Texan. <laughs> no ain't yes, and no ain't maybe. No is no. But the Quran teaches that the line of promise is from Abraham through Ishmael. And that Abraham offered Ishmael in potential sacrifice. On Mount Zion, where Solomon's temple stood, on a rock, which is now housed by the dome of the rock, this golden domed, beautiful, in terms of architecture, thir uh, third holiest site in Islam. It contains the rock on which it is said that Ishmael was offered up in sacrifice to God. But your Bible says it was Isaac, right? Now, why do I say that? I don't want to make enemies. I don't want to be at odds with anyone. But if you're trying to harmonize Islam and Christianity, good luck. They're not harmonizable. Don't try to get into this political correct deal where all roads lead to Rome. They don't. They don't. Some roads lead to perdition. No need for anyone to travel it. So here, God said, no, not Ishmael, but Sarah, your wife will bear you a son. Not Hagar. Sarah, your wife will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Yitzchak. Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an, what part of everlasting, don't you understand? For an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. That's pointer number five. The line of the promised Messiah has to pass through Abraham and Isaac but not Ishmael, 
contrary to the teachings of Islam. You know why Islam teaches that? Because Satan is not a creator, he's a counterfeiter. Only God is a creator. So Satan mimics what God has done because he wants to be like the Most High God. That's the nature of his fall, his prideful fall. So we would expect to see this interesting connection between Islam and biblical Christianity. <laughs> Because Satan saw the real deal and counterfeited it, and it's called Islam. So I, I know this is uh, uh, maybe distasteful conversation, but I'm deeply concerned about us giving uh, inappropriate credibility to a false religion. I didn't say turn against Islamic people. Heavens to Betsy. Thank God he didn't turn against us. His grace is sufficient for the salvation of anyone who will accept him so please don't misunderstand i just don't want us to think that your religion my religion we're on an equal footing come on please let's talk about truth over here so anyway uh here is the line of descent it is not through ishmael it is through isaac but isaac had two sons do you remember their names yeah yeah esau and jacob remember those guys and um so the question is, through which one of these guys is the promised line of Messiah? Now, here's what happened. Jacob's on the run from Esau. Remember all this? Jacob the deceiver, and he's on the run from Esau. And, and he sleeps one night, and he has a dream. Remember this magnificent dream of this ladder descending from uh, heaven and touching the earth and stuff like that? And, and uh, in this dream, God speaks to Jacob, Yaakov, and... and, and and this is what he says to him. And in what he says to him, God gives us pointer number six about who the Messiah is. Genesis 28, 13. And behold, uh, God is saying to Jacob, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord. The Lord stood above the ladder and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of your father Isaac. Can you see the line of descent here? Abraham, Isaac, the land on which you lie. Well, where is he? He's not in Canada when this was written. He's in, he's in Israel, the land of Canaan. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. I'm not trying to toot my own horn here. If, if I'm mishandling the text, then you tell me. What does that say? So now in this pointer, we find out that the line of promise passes through Abraham and Isaac, and Jacob, but we have a problem because Jacob had how many sons? Like a dozen. What is with this guy? Jacob had 12 sons. So from which of the dozen are we to conclude that the line of Messiah passes? Well, here's what happens. Jacob uh, is going the way of all of us. He's near death. And so he calls all of his kids together because this is a Hebrew uh, fashion. It ought to be everyone's fashion where the dad blesses his kids. So he wants to pronounce blessing upon his kids on the basis of um, their destiny and what they're like and their character and all the rest. And so uh, in Genesis chapter 49, we get a record of this meeting of Jacob near death and his 12 sons. And in what he did, we get pointer number seven. Check it out. It's Genesis 49, verse 10. 
the scepter, you know that's a symbol of authority, shall not depart from Judah. Nor the ruler's staff, again a symbol of royal authority, from between his feet until Shiloh, a very typical Hebrew reference to the Messiah, until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And so now we find out that the line of the promised one, the Messiah, is going to pass from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the specific and particular son of Jacob through whom the deliverer will come is Judah, Yehuda, which, by the way, means praiser of God. That's what the Jews were meant to be. We failed. But we were meant to be praisers of God. Yehudim. We're not, but we're supposed to be anyway. So uh, now we've got to ask the question. This, this sounds really good, but, you know, Judah, the tribe, it just expanded like crazy over the years. And so we need more specific information about who from the tribe of Judah is actually in the line of the promised deliverer. And so God gives us now pointer number eight. But now we get out of Genesis and we go further in the Old Covenant to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. Look what it says. Then in that day, a day yet to come, from Isaiah's point of view, then in that day the nations, that's you guys, <laughs> will resort to the root of Jesse who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. And so now we know that the Messiah, who comes from the tribe of Judah, will specifically come from the family of Jesse within the tribe of Judah. But which member in the family of Jesse will be in the line of the promised Messiah? Well, here's what happened. Saul became the first king of Israel. Remember him? It was really a bad deal. God said, I'll be your king. Israel said, oh, no thanks. <laughs> we want to be like everybody else. Hey, I want to tell you what. God, like any loving parent, gives his kids what they demand so that they would learn, stop demanding. So, uh, uh, so God gives him Saul. Gets off to a good start and then turns out to be, let's just say, not as good a king as God would be. And then Saul ends up being killed. In fact, we visit a place in Israel called Beit Shan, uh, where the very decapitated body of Saul and his sons was impaled on the wall of Beit Shan. He was killed on Mount Gilboa. You can see it in Israel. I mean, this, this is not Aesop's fables. This is like the real deal. So the first king of Israel ends up being killed by the Philistines. And so Samuel, prophet of God, is given the task of, he's like the search committee for the new king. Go, you got to find another king for Israel. And, and so um, here's what happens. Jesse's sons pass in review before Samuel. One of them is chosen, but which one? Well, we are given pointer number nine now. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 12 and 13. Here's what it says. Now, he was ruddy. Ruddy. He's a kid. Clean-shaven. Rosy cheeks. 
with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him. For this is he. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon who? David. Hamelech. David, the king. From that day forward. So then, folks, do you see what we're doing here? God promised us a Savior in the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And he points us away from pretenders to the throne and, and to the real line of human descent uh, from which the Deliverer will come. And so we're taken through the line of Seth and then Noah and then Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and then Judah and then Jesse and then David and... Ah, then comes one named Yeshua. Yeah, Jesus. And we read about his genealogy. Now we're in the New Covenant. And so it says of him in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, just that one verse, this is the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, look at this, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And folks, it isn't Reverend Moon. It's Rabbi Jesus, because Rabbi Jesus traces his line of descent specifically through all those nine pointers which we have been speaking about. So the promised seed of the woman spoken of in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, is none other than Jesus the Messiah. He descends through the line of Seth, and then Noah, and then Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Judah, and then Jesse, and then David. What's the point of all this? Can you see that uh, the line of the promised Messiah of the world is a very distinctively Jewish line. Can you see that Jesus the Deliverer is a Jew? Can you see that he came as a Jew? Can you see that he came first to the Jews? Can you see that he clearly came from the Jews? But not just for the Jews. So I make my statement again with which I opened. God chose the Jewish people to be the object. Oh, how he loves Jewish people. The apple of his eye sent the, pro sent the prophets to us, entrusts us with the oracles of God, gives us a temple, gives us a place. How could a chosen people who are supposed to sing forth the praises of Almighty God do so unless they're given a strategic place? Israel, the land of Canaan, is a land bridge between continents. Armies, people from all over the world have to pass through there. What a time. What a time to see one of the Yehudim, one of the praisers of God, calling attention to Almighty God. Nah, we have failed. But that doesn't mean God fails. He'll get it done. And he's getting it done through the Hebrew of Hebrews, the Lord Jesus. You know what the thing is about anti-Semitism if you're a Christian? It doesn't make sense. How could you hate the ones your Christ loves? <laughs> How could you hate the ones your Christ is? It just... I mean, if you want to be anti-Semitic, all right, 
but you got to perform some kind of lobotomy or something. It's just illogical. You cannot call yourself a person of the Bible and hate the people who the Lord Jesus most closely identified with, came to first, and ain't finished with yet. Now, his plan is not to come to Israel, stay with Israel, and stop there. No, remember I said Israel is the vehicle of God's love for the entire world. Israel is the people group from whom the Messiah, the promised deliverer, would come, but not just for Israel, on the contrary, for anybody, for there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. You see, for there is no other name that has been given under heaven amongst men by which we absolutely must be saved. He's the promised deliverer of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Now, some people say that's all over with. God did this historically with the Jews, but they dumped God, so he dumped them. Not true. Now, God doesn't need me to defend him, but I'm going to try anyway. The next few weeks, when we get together, let's just talk about what is God's response to the Jewish people in light of the way they have responded to him, their own Messiah. For now, I just want us to close on a different note. So would you stand together uh, with me? We're just going to sing this little brief. So, you see, here's the deal. Um, God came to, for, and through the uh, Jewish people, but his redemptive intentions are for the entire world. I perish the thought that uh, uh, Jewish people would think God is stuck on them. No, God didn't get stuck on the Jews. God came to the Jews. He, he needs a vehicle. He chose them to be the vehicle of his grace and his love for the entire world. Of all people, the most stiff-necked, the most obstinate, um, uh, you know, the least responsive to him so as to show everybody else his grace is sufficient to cover for all our sin. And so... It isn't so much that I want you to be stuck on, on Jewish people. I want you to really be stuck on the Jewish Messiah. <laughs> we have pointers. We know who he is. It isn't Moses. <laughs> it, isn't, it isn't David. It is, it's Yeshua. It's, it's the Lord Jesus. And, you know, the fact that he came is a tremendous, overwhelming uh, gift, you see, that he would come at all and choose to be identified with any people group so as to rescue every other people group is a source of great joy. And so I want for us to sing, if you don't mind this, which we usually sing around uh, Christmas time, but if you will permit me, listen, joy to the world, don't you see? Uh, The King, the promised one, the Christ, the Messiah has, has come. Let earth, re- you see, he came, he's king of Israel, he's, he was crucified here, king of the Jews, and he surely is. Oh, but in a far greater sense, you see, he's, he's, he's king of all who will, who will make themselves subjects of the king and be part of his a kingdom by faith. Joy to the world, you see, the Lord has come. Let earth, the entire earth, uh, receive her king. He's the king, don't you see, above all kings. Let every heart, yeah, Jewish hearts, 
and Gentile hearts. Let every heart prepare him room. Your apron of leaves, your religious behavior, your mitzvot, your good deeds can no more cover up for the nakedness of your sin than it worked for Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. Just as God clothed them, he said, I'll provide a covering for your sin in my blood. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. It's a cause for singing when you find the Jewish Messiah who came to be the Savior and Lord of anybody who will accept him. If you have, you can sing joy to the world. Would you help me sing this? Let's sing it. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let it...